Uh, I want to invite everyone to open your Bibles to Genesis. We're walking through Genesis together, and uh, today brings us to Genesis chapter 16. There is no God. Didn't want your preacher to say that this morning, did you? Maybe you're thinking that today. Maybe you're believing it. Or maybe you've seen or heard somebody else say it. But a preacher named David Platt had the best response to that I've ever heard. Uh, And uh, you can listen to the recording of this later to write it down because it it really is um, a great response. But it goes like this. To say there is no God, you must exhaust all possibilities that there is no God. If I were to say that there are no bugs in this church, I must exhaust every area and possibility to confidently say there are no bugs in this church. But to say there is no God you must exhaust all possibilities of all knowledge. And if you claim you have exhausted all knowledge, then by definition, you have all knowledge. Therefore, you deny your own divinity by saying, there is no God. It would take a lot of pride to say, I have all knowledge, wouldn't it? It would take a lot, uh, someone to think very highly of themselves to say that. Yet... While we may not think we're omniscient like God, all of us have the pride to try to act like God. Uh, It's the kind of pride that causes us to try to do things in our own power, to bring things under our control. And we do this every day without hesitation. You may not realize it, but you do this every day. Attempt to act like God. A few weeks ago in chapter 15, we saw Abram as an example of faith. In Abram, we saw what it means to have a genuine faith in God's word and in his promises. But today, in chapter 16, we see the exact opposite. Abram and his, his household are examples of, of non-faith. They are examples of what it looks like to try to act like God. I mean, really, chapter 16 is like a, a soap opera. You watch a soap opera and you wonder why anyone would watch it because it's so ridiculous. Or maybe that's why you watch soap operas. And if you do, I just want to encourage you as your pastor that there's a lot better things to watch than, than soap operas out there. Uh, just the other day on the internet, um, it's a soap opera from India and it's the most ridiculous thing in the world. This man and I guess his wife are in a mall and she has a, uh, a like a scarf that she swoops around her neck, and it gets caught in a fan, just like a standing fan. And for two minutes straight, it shows her just, uh, like she's choking, and she dies because no one thinks that to unplug the fan or to knock it over. But this fan that I don't know, it's ridiculous. And 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 that's exactly what we see in chapter sixteen. Okay, they're all acting insane. Chapters like this and more to come are why one writer describes Abram uh, as a roller coaster of faith. It's surprising that one chapter removed from him being this great example of faith, he's now an example of 
basically a non-faith. If this is all we had of Abram, we would say he's not an example of faith at all, actually. No, and listen, nobody in this chapter is perfect. Everybody's, everybody in this chapter has flaws that feature very prominently. But we end up with one character who is a surprising example of faith. And her name is Hagar. And the reason is that she's surprising is because, one, she's an Egyptian. Which not only means she's a foreigner, but a famous enemy of Israel, Egypt is. She's an Egyptian. Furthermore, she's a slave. So she's much lower on the totem pole, even more. And lastly, she's a woman. So by, by three counts, someone who is, is a, a non-human. So whereas Abraham exhibits a non-faith, Hagar is culturally non-human. And through this dynamic, we can see two errors. Two major errors that that we commit when we try to act like God through non-faith. And we also see three remedies to those errors. So two errors, three remedies. Alright, let's read chapter 16 together. You can follow along on the screen if you please, or in your own Bible. Chapter 16, now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went in to Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seed. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Bir Lahai Roy, Roi. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore us Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore Ishmael. And Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Lots of names in there, aren't there? Uh, first, there are two errors here that each person exhibits to an extent. And the first error is manufacturing. About ten years have passed since God first uh, promised Abram a child, right? Back in chapter 12, the promise of offspring 
right? Ten years have passed. I mean, can you imagine, can you imagine if God promised you a child when you, you were 75? Maybe you can imagine that right, right now. God appearing to you, you're gonna have a baby. You, you probably be thinking, well, that's not what I wanted, but secondly, alright, let's get the ball rolling. Not much time left. I want to be there when my kid graduates high school. I mean, my goodness, I, I want to be able to throw the ball with him before my shoulder gives out. Now, now, you're 86, and that still hasn't happened. And then you're in Abram and Sarai, Sarah's case, right? Like, it's, it's like, I'm nervous. Oh, I'm going to kick the bucket right around the corner, right? Sarai, Sarah, certainly feels that way. She actually goes further and believes God is the one keeping her from getting pregnant. In one sense, she's right. God is sovereign, but, but she's blaming God. Look at what she says. The Lord has prevented me from bearing children. She's blaming God. Now, I don't think that Sarai is actively thinking in her head, God is cruel, but that's what's going on in her heart. I mean, think about what she's thinking. God promised a baby, and he's keeping that from happening. It's his fault that I can't have one. In other words, God is holding back. He's being stingy. And maybe this morning you're cynical about God. Maybe it is that you're cynical that he's good. Maybe you believe that he's holding back or that he's withheld something from you and it's his fault. I just want to say to you, welcome to the club, because that's been a human problem since the very beginning. And so what Sarai says is, let's help God out. He's obviously not going to give us a baby, so let's take this into our hands to get what we want. A- Abram obeys without question. Okay, you know, like uh, my, one of my favorite comedian, and he's fairly clean. His name is Jim Gaffigan. I don't know if you've heard of Jim Gaffigan. He's funny, uh, but anyway, he he starts off. He has like five kids, and he's talking about how awesome it is that a woman can grow a human in her body. And he's talking about how what a miracle that is, and how amazing it is. And he, and and he. As he's talking about this, he impersonates the husband. He's like, well, well, I did something too. You know, like, it's like Abram's just being, being this, this normal dude here. He's like, okay, I'll do it. So this, but this whole scenario is so similar to the garden, isn't it? Eve doubts God's goodness, believes he's holding back, and convinces her husband to take matters into their own hands, and Adam be- obeys without question, doesn't he? Abram and Sarai are eating the fruit all over again, so to speak. This is the, the fall, the eating of the fruit playing out all over again 16 or 13 chapters later. In this way, Abram and Sarai are trying to manufacture something in their own power. This is one of the great dangers uh, that we face as a Christian is that we say with our words that we believe in God, but we deny Him with our actions. One Christian author described this attitude as as being a Christian atheist. You're you're practically an atheist. You live as if God doesn't exist. So, So what this looks like is we might try to go out of our way 
to get something that God has held back in his wisdom. That's what Abram and Sarai are doing here. They're going out of their way to get something God is holding back for a time. Uh, and, and often that includes going about it in sinful means. It might be that we try to get something that God has forbidden, like sin. Or it could be something very good that we make into an ultimate thing, and so we do whatever we can to get that thing. For Abram and Sarai, it's a child. Uh, for so, some people, it, it's sex. They, they, it's a good thing, but they make it an ultimate thing. For some, it's, it's wealth. Some, it's, it's comfort. As an example, uh, Douglas MacArthur, right, the famous general, uh, during the Korean War, right, his strategic intelligence was a really good thing, but his biggest flaw was making that intelligence into an ultimate thing. And because he did that, it cost the U.S. and the Koreans dearly. There could be a united Korean peninsula, probably for the sole factor John of Douglas MacArthur's Arrogance, essentially. But anytime, listen, anytime we try to do something in our own strength, with our own power, and to go out of our way to get what we want, defining it on, on our own terms, we are manufacturing. We are, are trying to act like God. And the result of that is self-righteousness. Hagar looked with contempt on Sarai. Hagar's works put her ahead above her mistress. Hers was a manufactured righteousness, in other words. Everything we have is a gift. Our faith is a gift. We didn't earn it. We didn't ask for it. We don't, we don't manufacture it. Our minds are a gift. The way that we think about things, the way we see the world... Our, our talents are a gift. Our personalities are a gift. Uh, the, our features are a gift. Everything. Paul, Paul asked the Corinthians very plainly in 1 Corinthians 4, what do you have that you have not received? Don't trust in your own works, in your own ability. If you do, you're not operating by faith. The second error where we try to act like God is through controlling. And we see this in a number of ways in this passage. First, Sarai controls through casting blame. I, I can't believe it. She convinces her husband to go sleep with Hagar. First of all, that's insane. But then she gets mad at him when he does just that. May the wrong done to me be on you. How ridiculous is that? That would be like blaming city utilities for your power going out when you called them to come help with a power line problem. I mean, that's, I, I do this, right? I, I, I'm, I'm a very poor sleeper, so I have a tendency to oversleep. And I ask Mal, hey, please wake me up or please help me not sleep so much. And when she does, I get mad at her. <laughs> Let me sleep. But at the heart of, of blaming others, for our problems creates the facade that we are innocent and righteous and is an attempt actually to control them by declaring them guilty. Abusers do this all the time. That's, abusers control their victims 
by casting the blame on their victims and using the guilt that their victims feel to continue to control them. We're, we're trying, in other words, when we blame others for our problems and our sins, we're putting others below us so that their only use is to make us feel better about ourselves. And Abram, this guy is remarkable because he's so passive. Not only does he just go with what Sarai says, he doesn't stick up for Hagar at all. He, he just says, not my problem. You deal with it. And is that not an endemic for husbands? Not my problem. And believe it or not, undue passiveness is also an attempt to control because it lets others shoulder the burden. This is why Paul puts such an emphasis on work in the New Testament. You read 2 Thessalonians, he says, keep away from any brother who was walking in idleness, that is, not working. Because, listen, that brother or sister is trying to control their world by letting other people bear burdens so they don't have to. It's an attempt to make yourself God and let others serve you and do the work for you. Instead of, instead of self-dying like Christ calls us to do, this passiveness is all about self-preservation. And, and perhaps the, the clearest example of control that we have comes from Sarai again. We read uh, there in verse, uh, verse 6, Sarai dealt harshly with her. It's really ironic that, that Sarai, the, the mother of Israel, deals harshly with an Egyptian because that word is the same word that's used to describe how the Egyptians treated the Israelites. It means oppress. You can make the argument that, that Sarah abused Hagar. Any time that we treat those under our power with an abuse of that power, we are oppressing them. Governments do this and have done this through slavery, genocide. I mean, a million examples. Companies do this through exploiting worker labor. It's the problem we have with um, labor in, in like places like China. They rely on exploiting workers. Parents do this. I, I include Me, I'm a parent, when we punish out of anger. right? Willa is under my authority. She's under my power. And instead of using my power to build her up, I'm using my power to put her down through my own self-righteousness. And, and listen, all of us in some way have someone who is in the realm of our authority, whether it's uh, maybe it's a co-worker or uh, uh, a, a subordinate, a grandchild, a child, uh, uh, someone we're... we're to care for, all of us have someone that's in our realm of authority. And when we tr try to control in our power, what we're doing is we're trying to make people into our own image. And that is trying to act like God. This kind of uh, action, this, this control, this manufacturing, trying to act like God is an addiction. It's an addiction for our hearts. If you have a beating heart this morning, you are drawn like a magnet toward this kind of pride. 
Your, your heart naturally gravitates at all times toward attempting to be like God. At all times. In alcoholic, Alcoholics Anonymous, where they deal with addiction, they urge you uh, that to break your addiction from alcohol, you have to give yourself to something else. So, uh, one very important way that they do that is help others, right? As you're going through these symptoms of withdrawal, give yourself to helping someone else. In addition to that, they uh, encourage everyone to seek a power greater than ourselves. Unfortunately, just seeking something greater than yourself won't heal you of your addiction to pride. It, It might help your addiction to things like alcohol or whatever, but it will only feed your pride. But there is some truth into giving yourself to something greater than yourself. There is truth to that. And while our pride would kill us and lead us to our death, God in His love gives us the remedy that we need to give ourselves to His greatness. His grace and His glory alone are enough to sufficiently heal our sickly hearts. Everything else is just an idol, no matter how great it is. And in this passage, there are three remedies for us to pursue to fight this pride. You have this problem, you have this pride, you have this addiction, therefore we have three remedies to pursue. In, in, uh, in verse 6, Sarai uh, deals harshly with Hagar, and what Sarai and Abram essentially do is send a pregnant woman out into the desert on her own. I mean, this is practically a death sentence. But it's when this woman is on her own, at her most vulnerable, when God visits her. Here, we see very clearly God's heart for the hurting and the vulnerable. So the first remedy is to seek the heart of God. God visits her as she rests by a spring of water, and He asks her where she's going. And she's really not going anywhere. Uh, She's just running from something. Where are you coming from? Where are you going? I'm fleeing! I'm just running from my mistress, Sarai. And God tells her, and in, in, in this angel, He tells her something very surprising. He tells her to go back to Sarai and, and submit to her. Now, if you, at this moment, are suffering abuse, don't necessarily take this and, say, and think you need to go right back to your abuser. I think the, God's point is different here. Why, why does God tell her that? Because it's only in relation to Abram that she'll find blessing. She flees somewhere else, she's going to be outside of that blessing. It's only in relation to Abram that she'll find that blessing. But isn't it, does this scene seem familiar to you? A, a lonely woman by a spring of water, God visits her. It reminds me of another moment when God visits a woman by water. When Jesus met the Samaritan woman at the well in John 4. That woman was running too. She wasn't necessarily running it somewhere. She was running from man to man. Hoping desperately to find the one who would complete her. 
And the same God, the same God who visited Hagar here, visited the Samaritan woman thousands of years later because the heart of God is a heart of great love. He loves, loves those who are most vulnerable in society. Often, that means women and pregnant women and single moms and the unborn. Listen, in our, our current cultural talks about abortion, as glad as we are to see the end of road versus Wade, God cares for the unborn and He cares for these pregnant women who think they have no other options. God cares for the widow, the orphan, the, all the kids in foster care, the foreigner. Psalm 68 calls God Father to the fatherless and a defender of widows. Guys, God doesn't use His power and authority to toss the vulnerable aside or to control them or to manipulate them. He uses His power to care for them and sustain them and lift them up. In fact, how we think about and how we treat the vulnerable reveals whether we share God's heart. Or, or whether they, they weigh on our hearts at all. Jesus said in Matthew 25, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. In that context, he's talking about orphans. He's talking about prisoners. The least, the vulnerable, the lowest. Want to kill your pride? Want to kill your heart's addiction to acting like God? Seek the heart of God. And, and then here we come to, in, in my opinion, and there are many, there are many like this, but one of the most misunderstood or at least misapplied scriptures uh, that, we, that we know. God tells Hagar that she will have a son, Ishmael. And Islam, if you didn't know this, famously claims that it is Ishmael, not Isaac, who is the child of promise. Right? So, in our scriptures, right, we, Isaac is the child of promise, and it is through Isaac that Christ will come. But, but Islam claims, no, it's not Isaac, it's Ishmael. And, and Muhammad comes from Ishmael. And, and listen, for us, we live in 21st century America. We bring an understanding of this text mixed with politics in the Middle East, right? I mean, the Cold War and the Russians and, 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 and terrorism. But the, the remedy that helps us solve our misunderstanding is also the remedy for our pride. Seek the kingdom of God. Don't forget, all right, we're going through Genesis and, and we're looking at a lot of details and we're saying a lot of things. Genesis is all about kingdom. It's the, the kingdom that God creates, the kingdom that God uh, entrusts to mankind, uh, the kingdom that is lost to sin, and the kingdom that God is now working to restore. And, and He's now promising to restore it through Abram. And here he, he promises a kingdom to Hagar. He's promising a kingdom to her. It's not the, the, the kingdom that He will redeem the world through, Jesus Christ, His kingdom, but it is a kingdom. And this kingdom will be problematic. It'll be marked by infighting and outfighting, 
uh, verse 12, he shall be a wild donkey of a man, un- uncontrollable, controlled by passions, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kin- kinsmen. But it's important, as we look at this verse, to see that it is framed by blessing. First, in God's visit to Hagar. Right? This is a gracious visit of God. Second, in the explicit blessing of verse 10, I will multiply your offspring. Very similar language to Abram. It's a blessing. And lastly, Hagar blesses the Lord in verse 13. So, so this, this prophecy is framed by blessing. We should get our wheels turning and ask why. Why is a kingdom like this predicted to be this way framed in such a way? What I believe Moses is trying to get us to see is that though this, this kingdom that will come through Hagar will be problematic, it is still somehow connected to God's plan to bless all nations. At this point, if you're an Israelite reading this, you don't know how that's going to be, but it is connected. In other words, and this is what I want us to hear today, that our culture wildly misunderstands. Ishmael's birth was not a mistake in God's sovereignty. But part of his plan to bring Ishmael's descendants under the blessed reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? God is creating an entire people group to one day bring to Christ. How good is God? Derek uh, Rijmawi, you can tell by his last name, he's, he's a Palestinian Christian. And he wrote about how often we tend to see Abrams and Muslims as, as problematic. But, but he writes this, he wrote, viewing an entire people group, one of the families of the earth, primarily as an obstacle to peace, instead of as an object of God's love in Christ, is a failure to see God's purposes for the nations in the drama of redemption. Listen, I know that there's a lot to say about politics, okay? I'm not here to talk about politics. I'm not here to talk about visas and and how we should approach conflict in the Middle East. What I'm trying to show you here is that God has a plan for Muslims. And He has a plan for the Middle East. He has a plan for Israel. And He has a plan for Palestine, all the same. And that's to bring them under the rule and reign of His Son, Jesus, because He loves them just as He loves us. This cures all of our attempts to be like God because instead of trying to build our world or or manufacture a kingdom uh, how we want it done, we give ourselves to how God wants to build His kingdom. So we pray for the families of the earth who have not yet heard of this Christ. We have been brought into the family of Abram through our faith in Christ and there are still yet families that God wants to bring into it. We pray we give our lives in obedience to make disciples of all nations. Oh, that we would repent of the dullness of our hearts over the lostness of the world. Oh, that we would be a people who beg God for the mercy to see the world as He sees it. 
In this way, we come to the last remedy. Seek the glory of God. This passage ends with worship. Not with Abram worshiping, not with Sarai worshiping, but Hagar, the Egyptian slave woman. I love, love verse 13. So she called the name of the Lord. God allows Hagar to give him a name. Isn't that amazing? Called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. Of course, he said, truly, I have seen him who looks after me. Amazing, isn't it? It's beautiful. Church, ask God to inflame your heart with the thought that he is the God of seeing. He is the only God of seeing. There are many other gods who claim they can see, but He is the only one who can see. He is the God who sees everything. He is the God who delights in seeing. He is the God who wants us to see that He is the God of sight. He is the God who sees all things as they are. All things past, all things present, and all things future. He sees all angels and all demons and spiritual realities that no other creature can see. He sees all creatures and atoms and particles. Every leaf and sparrow that falls to the ground. He sees quantum mechanics that a guy like Stephen Hawking could only ever dream of seeing. That that we humans may never even know about. He sees all the depths of your human heart, all your sin, all attempts at your self-righteousness, all your pride, all your desires, all your brokenness, all your misery, all your failure. He is the God who sees you in Christ. If you are trusting in Christ today. He sees not a sinner if you are in Christ, but someone completely righteous. He sees not someone who has strayed, but as someone who has been faithful their whole life. Can you imagine that? The God of holiness and all knowledge sees you if you are believing in Jesus as if you've never strayed once in your entire life. Because of Christ. He sees you, Christian, as an eternal object of passionate and zealous love. Because He has set His infinite affections on you in Christ. Just as you would die in His presence because of His holiness, your heart would collapse in the presence of His breathtaking love. But He is preparing you for an ever-increasing capacity to know Him and His love forever. Lewis Allen wrote that God is holy Merciful, sovereign, and loving. He is each one utterly and completely. He is all of His attributes in their fullest expression all at the same time. God's love neither conquers nor is crushed by the other attributes. Each exists maximally in the Godhead for His glory and our good. I love this line. Let God be a lover and every man a liar. Let God be a lover. And every man alive. 
Humble yourself before the God of seeing. Lay aside your glory-seeking and self-pleasure-seeking and seek the glory of the one and only God. Be dazzled by His glory and give Him glory. It's no small thing for the holy and eternal God to set His love on sinners. It's no small thing for God to forgive people who seek their own glory and attempt to be like Him. Far from arousing His forgiveness, those things only arouse His holy wrath. And it took the life of the eternal Son of God who knows no beginning and no end, who never knew hunger or thirst. It took His life in the man Jesus Christ. It was not a righteous man who died in your place, but the righteous one. It was not a a good man who took all your sins on himself, but the sinless son. It is only in relation to Christ that you can be pardoned. That you can be fully remedied. And today, listen, today you have heard the word of God proclaimed as feebly as it might have been. But you either walk away transformed by the glory of the God who sees or you walk away unchanged and condemned. Let God be true and every man a liar. Respond to Him rightly this morning because He is the God of seeing. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we have the eternal promise that that, that Hagar has here that God sees because you came. Doesn't matter how we feel about God seeing us. It doesn't matter if we think our sin keeps us from seeing Him seeing us. Jesus, because you came, we know God sees us. All we must do is is look to You and cry to You. You see our our sin, our shame, our our treachery. You see that we say, I'm sorry for my sin, God. And, And you see that we, 15 minutes later, commit that same sin. You see our waywardness. You see our attempts to be like God, to set up idols, to make our idols of ourselves. You see it all. And yet you freely gave your life for all that you see in us. Freely. Out of love. Out of grace. Out of mercy. You say, I'm not surprised by any of this. I knew this when I saved you. I knew this when I died for you. You're a God who sees. Lord Jesus, reveal Yourself to us as You reveal Yourself to Hagar in this passage and and more. Reveal your glory to us and remedy our pride-sick, sin-sick hearts because you are a, a Savior who loves to remedy broken, tired sinners. We pray this in your great, glorious name, Lord Jesus. Amen.